Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Threat Talk. I'm your host, Bob Hansman. Now, there's no shortage of scary stories for Halloween or Cybersecurity Awareness Month this year, but a lot of them, despite the media hype, won't cause most security professionals to lose any sleep. But others might. So we've invited back Ed Hunter, the CISO for Infoblox, to talk about the last year and what threats, trends, or technologies landed on his list of things to be concerned about. Thanks for joining us, Ed. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, before we get into the less obvious, let's get deal with just the threat landscape. I mean, the press tends to hype every new threat like it's the end of the world, every breach like, ooh, everybody's going to have this soon. Um, and when there's no news of a threat or a breach, they'll go find some tin hat paranoid to theorize about how some new technology is going to spell doom for all mankind. Um, but as somebody who actually deals with reality, what areas of the threat landscape of malware have caused you the greatest concern this year? I would say that ransomware and ransomware readiness is still the number one topic. It's evergreen, right? It's been with us for a while. It will continue to be with us. Um, but last year, uh, about $400 million was paid out in ransom and uh, it's continuously evolving threat. And there's been twists, some twists and turns, a um, lot happening in that area, but uh, getting ready for that, testing for it, making sure the proper controls are in place all things that are top of mind right now. Yeah, I remember when it came out, it was really hot. Um, of course, this was what a decade ago when a lot of threats were still mostly regional. So it hit really heavily in the US um, and in Europe for about a year. And then everybody got tired of hearing about it. And it kind of died down um, as it shifted to Asia and a lot of APAC, uh, the APAC region got hit real hard. Um, and it's one of the few viruses that have then come back and um, and it's got staying power because they keep evolving it. Um, the threats are, are evolving. And then, uh, like you said, um, you know, the response now has gotten to even the point where governments are issuing all sorts of very specific warnings and guidances around it. Yeah, I think the advent of cryptocurrency has really kind of helped this along because it's uh, supposedly gives you a completely untraceable way to pay these uh, actors. Um, but it's interesting also earlier this year, um, the, the US government uh, created a new digital crimes task force and was actually able to recover some, uh, some payments. So I, I think having a public ledger available um, is, is part of that, but there's probably also a lot of other secret sauce that the US government has become involved with and, and helps them backtrack where these payments are going. and intercept them along the way and get these uh, these funds back for people. Incidentally, you know, only half the time, uh, if you do pay, statistics show you only really get your data back about 50% of the cases. Yeah, not a good uh, return on investment to, to do that. Um, but I know like what you're talking about, the uh, Colonial Pipeline was the first big one I remember reading in the news where they were able to recover some of the money. Um, but there's been another uh, couple of big wins in the in the press recently. So uh, the government's been getting involved a lot more on the defense side. Um, but then governments are also in the attack side too, right? Yeah, I was just reading a study earlier today about uh, relative rankings with all the nation states and their capabilities. So um, yeah, it's interesting that it's 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 come to that, and that's become uh, sort of another. Uh, almost military arm in, in some cases of, of governments um, in other 
in others more intelligence-based, but uh, uh, certainly a, a developing capability for a lot of uh, government entities right now. And, and also you saw a lot going on with uh, Russia and Ukraine, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and that's also reflected in kind of the, the scores because you see some exercise of power or attempted exercise of power um, and offense and defense in, in that particular case. Yeah, I think a lot of people um, are obviously aware of how the nation states are involved in a lot of the misinformation. They see, they read a lot about that in social media. But to get the ransomware out and to spread it, they're using social media for that. Um, there are some new technologies like the MFA bombing, multi-factor authentication bombing. Um, what what are you having to deal with in order to uh, respond to the ongoing onslaught of ransomware? Yeah, well, well, tactics have changed slightly. You mentioned MFA bombing. That's that's a somewhat new one where, uh, you know, when you try to access some information resource and your your MFA sends you a, a prompt to approve, um, what they're doing now is they're sending multiple prompts to people hoping that you'll just click OK. So it's, it's kind of a, a twist on spamming, right? Um, but spamming and phishing... Um, that's been with us for a long time. Um, it'll continue to be with us. I mean, it's it's really an artifact of having to accept email from non-authenticated sources, right? And you think about it, you don't know who's going to send you that next email. It could be someone you trust, someone you don't trust. It could be a malicious actor. It could be a vendor. It could be an old acquaintance, right? You really don't know and you can't really pre-approve. Interestingly, you, you see some of these email systems have kind of a pre-approved list I think Yahoo is one of them where you can, you can basically say, well, I don't want to see email from non-approved senders. And they, they kind of go into a quarantine holdings uh, zone where you can kind of go through and pick through them, but it, it delays responses. There's, there's always a cost to, to doing something. Like yeah. That. Yeah. We actually did something uh, recently on the podcast with um, Anthony, who uh, is uh, running your SecOps team. Right. And uh, we were talking about the, um, the cost of, security, you know, productivity versus uh, protection, kind of uh, the the balancing of all of that. So like you said, yeah, all the security comes at some sort of a cost. That, that's very true. I mean, I, I think that's that's a, uh, an interesting observation. Very true. Um, you know, tone from the top and how much a company is willing to invest in security and how much users are willing to support the security controls and, and become involved themselves because it's, it's really, um, you know, across the board where we have to be conscious and aware. And, you know, we need management support. We need user support. It's not just the information security team working by themselves in the corner, right? It, it involves everyone. Well, you, and you're talking about the, the human aspect, you know, uh, management is what you're referring to. But I'm also thinking about the employee aspect. So let's shift from talking about how malware is changing, what, what areas of that are causing you concern, what about the whole employee shift? I mean, um, users create security concerns. Um, I mean, there was the joke, you know, that's the number one vulnerability on a network was the users. I think that's probably now maybe number two uh, for a lot of companies that have good programs. Um, but, you know, what have you seen on the employee slash user front this year that maybe has caused you concern? Well, I, I think because of COVID in the last couple of years, um, there's always been a user responsibility and security. Um, but as we all work from home, more of the things, 
um, that involve security are under a user's control than before, ever before. So previously, you'd come into the office and you'd have to badge in and you'd go to your cubicle area and you'd work on your computer and, and, you know, I'm not saying people off the street walk through your house, but there, we, we don't have any control over that from a corporate perspective, who's in your house, whether or not you lock your screen, um, whether or not you uh, leave your laptop in a secure area. If you leave it around the office, that's probably okay because uh, you need a badge to get in. But, uh, you know, if you leave it in your backyard and someone comes into your backyard, we have no control over that, right? right. Um, but, you know, another thing that occurs to me is, you know, when you print something out, um, you have a, you have a secure disposal bin at, uh, at work and, uh, you're like, okay, well, I have this customer data. I, I need to securely dispose of it. We provide a, a box for you to put that in. Hopefully when you're at home, you're not just throwing that into your recycle bin and it's sitting out in front of your house for 48 hours or 24 hours while the, while the uh, garbage people are coming to pick it up. Uh, hopefully you have a nice Crosscut shredder, but not everybody does, right? So some of these these sort of burdens do fall onto um, onto you as as and me as well as as employees, right? To start thinking about some of these things before um, the physical security, the the security of your home network, um, all all those things. Um, you, you have to spend some time doing your due diligence to make sure that your data is protected as well as the company's data is protected. Yeah, I was reading something the other day about the psychology of working at home that um, when people are in an office environment, you know, doing something like sticking in a USB drive and copying data that you're not supposed to, if you're not supposed to be using USB drives, they're probably less likely to do it because there's a chance somebody might walk by and see you doing it. Um, there's also the the professional, you know, we all tend to have that button that flips in our head. I'm in the office now. Now I'm professional. Then when you get home, it's like, okay, let's crack open the refrigerator and a couple of beers. Um, so the attitude goes down as far as cybersecurity, you know, or just security general uh, thinking uh, for an employee. So when they're home, uh, that risk is going up because they're just not paying that much attention all the time either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, there's been... You know, some best practice and discussion about, you know, how best to kind of another struggle we have is the separation between our, our home life and our work life. Right. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was looking around for a house a while ago, not this one, but a couple, couple ago, <laughs> we were looking around in the, in the mountain area and there was a one property we looked at and there was a shed like a 10 by 10 outbuilding um, with a fax machine and a computer and that sort of thing and a mm-hmm. little path that went to the house. And I guess that's how that particular individual dealt with separating their kind of work life and, and, and their home life. They went and walked the path for two minutes out to this outbuilding and they did their work and then they shut their door and they went back um, home. Right. So their commute was that, that two minute walk. But uh, you know, I, I think, you know, that, that might be a solution for a lot of us, right. You have another room in the house. If you're, if you're lucky enough to have that space available to you. And if you're, set it aside, you put all your work things in there, you have maybe a different security level. Maybe you lock that door when you're not using that um, space. If you, you, you certainly don't want to make sure, you want to make sure that any customer data or, or critical uh, info blocks data or whatever your company happens to be, um, uh, that data is protected, right? Um, yep. Well, and a lot of the employees that, uh, you know, that you're trying to secure, their jobs have always had a, a 
with little exception, their, their jobs have had an aspect of mobility where they still might be able to work from home on occasion. So you've always had a little bit of that off network um, security, but it was always on a temporary basis, right? I mean, and then with COVID, it also became semi-permanent. Yeah, I think, I think there's a, um, there's seasoning. <laughs> um, some folks, sales folks, for instance, might uh, might be uh, very familiar with working completely from home and at other customer sites and so forth, and may have done that for 10, 20 years. Um, so really COVID didn't change much for them other than they're not making as many customer visits, I would suppose. But, but for um, some folks, like take myself, for instance, um, I was used to just going to the office every day. So it was more of a change for me, right? So it, it, those people are probably more risky. I'm calling myself risky in this case. <laughs> so yeah. I, have to, I, have to, I have to learn those best practices and apply them, right? So Yeah, my wife actually worked at one point for uh, a popular shipping company who I won't name because um, they all have the same problem. There's a lot of other industries as well where they had, she worked in a facility where they had a little over 1,000 people and all they did was data entry. Number one, they never took the computers home. They came in, you worked your shift, you went home. Those computers were always on the network and always behind, you know, gateways and, and all those defenses. Um, matter of fact, they even had three shifts that would come in and use the same computer. Um, so the same machine was being used by three different people. They just logged in under a different identity. So 3,000 people whose job was never off-site. Um, now she wasn't there when COVID came out, but she has some friends she made there that are, you know, lifelong kind of friends. And they were asking her advice because they knew she was married to me <laughs> because they were all of a sudden assigned uh, like a Chromebook low end laptop to just do data entry at home. And they were just told, protect it yourself. They had no idea what to, what to do. Um, the company was scrambling. I understand a few months later that the company did actually finally roll out an update that included more than just desktop AV. That's all these laptops had on them because when COVID hit, um, a lot of organizations like this one in particular, they weren't as experienced with how to secure mobile or full remote type environments. Um, so they had to get kind of used to technology, um, and then at the same time, though, we've been dealing with edge computing. I don't know. Have you been having to do much with edge computing where, you know, basically the offsite person is, you know, they're just using apps. They're just, everything's remote. They don't actually do anything on their machine. Do you have any, anything in that, that bucket? It's certainly a trend. So Infoblocks, for instance, is, is a SaaS first company. So, um, Infoblox has been around for 20 years and SaaS has not been around for 20 years. So obviously at the <laughs> beginning, um, you know, we'd build our own servers and, you know, run our own apps and our own data centers. And, and most companies were like that. Um, all companies were like that 20 years ago, um, yeah. unless you had something like an EDS or something, which is <laughs> one, one level, one level of uh, detached, but similar situation. Often those data centers were still on customer sites. Yeah. Um, but, but now we're, we're looking at putting all these apps in the cloud, right? So we have users directly connecting to them with other devices that we don't control. And that, that's certainly a trend that we see, right? Um, and just speaking from Infoblocks, we're, we're, we're far along in that migration. We, we do, we are um, 
SaaS first, and we do try to keep things out of the data center. Um, or da- we don't have any remote data centers at this point, so we've been successful in closing all those down. Though you know we do have these these uh, a few things, especially in en- engineering and customer support, where we need to have labs and physical access to things. So um, a lot of companies are like that, especially if you you have a fab, you're you're making chips, you're Tesla, you're making cars. I mean, you really can't. Uh, put all that in the cloud. Though even those companies um, are, are are going cloud first and putting as much as they can in AWS. Now, on the the last thing I want to cover on the user side, um, sure. and I like this one. I particularly have you or Anthony online because you know I've worked at a half dozen security companies in my career, and they all have some user education going on. But it seems to be pretty much the same stuff that people make fun of in chat rooms and stuff. Um, they don't do anything creative until I came to Infoblox and you guys have a very aggressive training. Something I've mentioned on the, on the, the podcast before is that, um, number one, it's integrated with all the other training. It's not like there's this special thing you get from it every now and it's, it's an HR program, just like every year I need to learn, you know, the international legalities of shipping appliances to, to countries that, you know, are on embargo and how to check, you know, other compliance things, uh, sexual harassment training, all this other stuff. And oh, by the way, here's your cybersecurity training. You guys are just wrapped in part of that. But this last year you did something, um, kinda, I, I realize I'm leading the witness at this point, but you guys did some, uh, some really new stuff. I mean, you were already kind of ahead of the game from my experience. Um, why don't you share with our audience, what have you done with your user education this year that, uh, it's really had a good impact, at least that I can see. Yeah, there, there's a couple of things that we do a little differently. Um, um, at the beginning, when we started our compliance program, um, most people do this. You get some stock training um, from a provider um, and you roll it out to your users, probably between 30 minutes and an hour on an annual basis. And, and that satisfies the compliance checkbox, right? Um, and, and we've done that in the past. And, and that's what what most folks do. Um, but uh, in the last year, what we did is we created our own custom training. So uh, we purchased some tools and work with our marketing department and, and got together um, a, a 30 minute custom segment that we rolled out to all users, which was really company branded and, and really focused on our controls and our risks and, and so on and so forth. Right. Um, and that's great. And, and I think that's more engaging for users and more valuable. Um, the downside, of course, is, is the cost and effort that goes into that. Um, so we may not do that every year, but I, th- I think that was a worthy experiment. And I think that went well. Um, well, one of the things I thought was great about it is that it's the first time I've ever passed a test 100%. Oh, great. Um, because all the other tests by these canned companies, you'd swear that there was an outline drawn up by a security guy and then they handed it over to marketing writers because I read those, those questions. It's like A, B, C, or D. Well, two of these are right, but you're only allowing me to pick one. And I have a 50, 50 chance of getting the one that they want you to answer. It's that old thing in school. You know, you don't learn to give the right answer. You learn to give the answer the teacher's looking for. And that's what those old tests were like. I was trying to figure out what they wanted me to do and, uh, if I was lucky, I could go back and rewatch the video. And I complained occasionally because I said, okay, even your video says this, but on the test, I got it wrong, you know, but this year, I mean, you guys 
have it based on practical experience, what we're actually encountering, the examples were relevant to us. I just thought that was so much more, like you said, engaging. But I also think for a lot of the people that I work with, because I have a technical background, I was a developer and, and all that before, uh, even though now I have the marketing title on my name. Um, when I work with people that are pure marketing, have never really done anything technical, they got it. They understood it and they not only learned, but they felt they felt good about it. And that's weird to see people feel good about a cybersecurity test. So uh, congratulations on that. And then it still had the old phishing stuff. I mean. Yeah, that, that that's worth talking about as well. Um, most breaches uh, and many attacks start with sending email to your users, right? Because we, we talked mm -hmm. about that before. You can't really say, I'm only going to accept email from trusted folks. Most people don't do that. Um, so to help with phishing specifically, we purchased, there's a, several out there. One of the phishing platforms, commercial phishing pl platforms, and we uh, on a monthly basis, we roll out uh, a fake phishing email to all the users in the company. And uh, there's a button embedded in Outlook, and you can click on that and say, report fish. And if it's if it's uh, the monthly uh, phishing exercise email that uh, you're identifying when you're clicking the button, it basically identifies it and says, congratulations, right? And we, we measure... Uh, how many people report and how many people uh, actually click through. And if you do click through, it just goes to a screen that basically says, oh, you've been fished, right? And, and we've we positioned it in a way where it's not <clears throat> a gotcha moment, right? It's a teaching tool, essentially. So, you know, practice makes perfect, right, with anything. So, you know, it Every month, something comes out and, and people just get used to clicking the report fish. And if it happens to be a real phishing email, it will actually encapsulate that email and send it to our SOC. And our SOC can go look at the headers and, and all that. It's encapsulated in that uh, notification. So we'll get right on that and, and we'll block that source and get back to the user and that sort of thing. So it's, yeah. uh, I, I think, very effective and, and something that, that frankly wasn't around five years ago. So it's, it's a relatively new thing. Well, and the other thing you mentioned, you know, it's training them on a lot of things like, you know, how to recognize fish, but it's also training them on the tools, that fishing button, having that fishing button on my Outlook bar, I know it's there and I get quite a few uh, phishing emails, legitimate ones. Um, and I probably report three or four a month uh, that come through. Um, and it's just so nice to have that convenient tool. And I've talked to other people just kind of feeling out, you know, how well that's working. And everybody, I have yet to find somebody who says they, well, I don't know, where is that button? They all know it um, because these, these lessons have also, uh, or those, okay, I'll call them tests, but they're actually lessons have taught them not only how to recognize the email, but how to use the tools that you've put in place for it. I think that's, that's been great. Yeah, now, that's, that's great to hear. I mean, uh, just a uh, technical aside, right? If you forward, if you, if you receive a phishing email and you forward it to your security folks, or you forward it to your manager who forwards it to your security folks, it, it A, takes time, and B, that your security person is probably going to contact the end user and ask for them to uh, provide the full email with the headers, right? Just mm -hmm. an additional step requires explanation. But if you, if you install this kind of a tool in Outlook, it'll pull those headers automatically and just kind of cut out the middlemen. So it just makes everything more efficient. Takes InfoSec less time, takes less user time as well. Yeah. 
Well, um, we're running out of time here. I want to get to the last area. So we've talked about the malware landscape, how that's changed and caused, you know, the concerns around ransomware and that's evolving always. Uh, we've talked about the human aspect. I want to talk about the technology side of things. I mean, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, on a slow news day, when they can't find a real breach or, or a new type of virus, um, there are some in the press that will go find somebody who will talk about a new technology and all the things that could go wrong with it. And that, I mean, that's just the way it works. Every time something new comes out to provide a benefit, you do have to look at what risks or costs there are uh, to that kind of thing. I mean, it's going to have vulnerabilities. It's going to have some other things that are, that are wrong with it. And it might even open up a new attack surface. Who knows? So when you look at things that you've been adopting over the last while, what technologies have been giving you the greatest concern? Well, in information security, uh, there's a bit of portfolio management, if I can call it that, Mm -hmm. um, in designing what security controls you're going to implement and what kind of vendors you're going to buy products from. And and really, it's something that you just continuously need to assess and swap out controls. And I, I can't tell you, well, you need to buy these seven controls and then you're covered, right? It, it really depends on your industry and where your infrastructure is and where your data is and where your risk is at the end of the day, right? Um, so there's an endless amount of companies out there. I'm sure if you're a security person, you know that. Um, so there's a certain allocation of your time that you have to uh, spend to stay on top of those technologies and evaluate what's, what's best for your company, right? Yeah, well, I can give you a specific example. Um, your group, uh, maybe a month ago, sent out a warning to all the employees about a new update for iOS, warning us not to upgrade to it in the near term because there were some risks, hadn't been mitigated yet. So you, you've been watching, you know, OS updates as well. And I don't think I get those very often. As a matter of fact, I think it's maybe the second time I've been a don't upgrade Got, got a no, don't upgrade message uh, from my IT team, but you guys are even watching that kind of stuff because again, uh, oh, what was it? I think it was last December. We're coming up on the anniversary where Microsoft had a major vulnerability. They released a patch for it and the patch created several more vulnerabilities. There was a patch like a couple of days after that. They ended up with five or six patches over like a two week period, patching the patches of the patches that were patched for the first vulnerability. Yeah, patching is a pain. Patching is definitely a pain. Um, it's like whack-a-mole, right? Um, and, you know, some of these patches are even coming out on vulnerabilities that have been around for 20 years. There is an instance of that coming out in, in Microsoft land last year, I think. Um, so as we're talking about users here, um, there is one way that users can definitely help. Um, these patches do get do come out on a regular basis. Sometimes they're not scheduled. Microsoft and actually most software vendors have have tried to uh, align around the second week of the month. Uh, Microsoft started that, and a lot of other vendors kind of jumped in, so you could get one raft of patches pushed out the second week of the month. But you know, before we send out a patch as as IT or infosec, there's a certain amount of testing that always happens, kind of integration testing. If you're familiar with that term. Um, so each comp- company has a platform, an operating system, and, a, and a, a series of applications that get installed on there by default and by option. Um, all that needs to work together. Um, or you might run into some 
um, bad problems that could affect your productivity, right? And just taking the, uh, the, the Apple update, for instance, uh, there are certain applications that are not qualified yet to run on that platform. So if you go ahead and install that, um, certain things might stop working, like your email or your IM platform or whatnot, right? So there's someone keeping an eye on all that. Um, so I would, I would read those IT updates. I know a lot of people don't. Um, so I know that's, that's kind of additional work, but I, I think that's advised. And then I would say on the patching side, um, just realize it's, it's a continuous uh, uh, whack-a-mole game. Um, patches will get released on a continuous basis. The best thing users can do is just set aside some time, maybe at the beginning of lunch or something to accept those and reboot your machine and, and just kind of keep on top of those because I, I, we're all busy. And, uh, and I know I, I delay things sometimes because I've got a to-do list a million items long, um, but, but do have some priority for, for making sure your device is, is patched and protected. And it's, it's not only deploying the patch, but often a reboot is required. So that also cleans out the memory on your machine um, <laughs> and makes your machine run faster. So there's, there's some user benefit there as well. Um, I rebooted my machine this morning because it, my, uh, actually my, the bar on the bottom of my screen said it was uh, 1201 or something like that midnight. So clearly my operating system was doing something funny. So time for a reboot, uh, flush out all that memory, make sure all those patches get fully applied and, and good to go starting the day. All right. Well, um, we are just about out of time here. So um, I do want to kind of summarize though. The title and the abstract that um, we've uh, been leading on this uh, podcast was about, you know, losing sleep over security. And it sounds like because you've got uh, user education training, you've got a breadth of tools that, you know, you test, you review, you're constantly updating uh, all those processes, people and technologies that you have in place. It doesn't sound like you've I mean, you've probably had a lot of sleepless nights when, you know, there's all of a sudden a lot of work to be done. Like you said, all of a sudden a bunch of patches that need to be tested and integration testing and all that, that creates a workload. But as far as worrying whether you're going to wake up to a breached company, that uh, doesn't sound like anything special really stands out over this last year, does it? No, I, th I think uh, the, the uh, environment that we work in hasn't changed too much. I think the biggest impact or change has just been um, more people working from home and having to move some security controls from the, the network area uh, to the endpoints. Um, but, you know, the, the attackers are, are still doing this, the same sort of things. And, uh, you know, we continue to be vigilant and hopefully the users will be as well. So we'll work together <laughs> and make sure our company is protected. Well, that's fantastic. Um, and I think that's a good message. I hope our audience takes away that if you do the prep work, you do the planning, you think it through, um, you won't have a whole lot of sleepless nights. It'll just be, that's the way it is every day, more and more. So um, I do want to thank you again for being with us, Ed. Thanks for joining us. Sure. Thank you. And I want to thank all of our viewers and listeners for your time. Please join us next time as we continue our efforts to help you stay on top of cybersecurity and ahead of cyber risks on Threat Talk.